Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the TMI Entrepreneurship Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rocker Priori, and my wonderful co host for this episode. Hi, I'm Joshua White. For this episode of the podcast, we have with us Melissa Carden. For those that don't know Melissa, she is the Haslam Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Tennessee. Many of you know Melissa as she is one of the pivotal people in entrepreneurial passion. However, not many people know that she spent 20 years of her career at Pace University, which is a teaching-oriented university. If you look at Melissa's CV, if you look at her Google Scholar, you'll see that she has over 13,000 citations, many of which she got while she was at a teaching school. So we thought she would be a great person to have on this episode to talk about being at a teaching school, moving to a research-oriented university, and how she decided to make these life changes throughout her career. So without further ado, we'd like to welcome Melissa as our guest for today. So your icebreaker question is, what was your favorite assignment or school project when you were a kid? Okay, okay. I'll, I'll give you one in college, but um, that's kind of a lame one at the moment, but I'll give it to you anyway, because that's all I can remember. Um, so I was a political science undergrad. That was my major. Yeah. And uh, I won't tell you why. It doesn't matter. I guess I'll do worse for this forum, but it's political science undergrad, and I took a class on world politics. And my school project was to research and forecast what would happen to a country called Yugoslavia. Uh, I don't know if you youngins have heard of this country, but it no longer exists. And you now have countries like Slovenia and Montenegro and some of those that are in what used to be Yugoslavia. And uh, one of the things I predicted in that paper, um, I should note, I graduated in the early 1990s from college. So before all that happened, I had predicted that the country would break apart. And so that's kind of fun. I, I think it was probably obvious to anybody that was paying attention that the, the country was going to break apart. But that's one that I, I wish I still had the paper that I wrote that said, sort of, here's what I think is going to happen. I'd love to compare it to what actually did happen. It would be great for those listeners who may not know you uh, to know kind of why you decided to get into this career and how you got to this point of your career. Okay, so uh, you don't do anything with political science undergraduate degree. So I went to grad school and got my MBA and worked in human resources for a couple of years for a big company called KeyBank, uh, headquartered in Cleveland, and decided that I didn't want to be in corporate America forever because it's not... I was going to be rude, but it's not right for me. I'll just say it that way. Um, and decided I wanted my PhD because I wanted to teach. Uh, applied to PhD programs, went to Columbia. It's the only one I got into. Uh, so that's why I went to Columbia and uh, learned very quickly that uh, teaching is a very small part of this career, supposedly, according to the faculty there. And you do this thing called research. I didn't know that was a thing. I was not the brightest um, young 20-something at the time. Um, so did my PhD, got a job at a research institution for four years. I was at Case Western Reserve for four years. And then for a number of reasons, I uh, ended up leaving there and going to a teaching school called Pace University. I was there for 13 years. And then uh, ultimately found my way to the University of Tennessee, where I'm in year five. Um, but the career for me I got into and why I study what I study is my dad was an entrepreneur and started a business when I was a young kid, like seven or so. And so I grew up with his company and saw all kinds of things from the family member perspective. And I didn't really understand what was happening because I was a kid. Um, but the more and more I've um, 
sort of understood what I study, which is the psychology of entrepreneurs, the more I now understand things in retrospect that were going on in my life then, and my brother and sister are both entrepreneurs now, um, and so it's just kind of, they do it, I study it, and it works out pretty well. That's um, that's really awesome, Melissa. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned is moving from a research school to a teaching school, and um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and like your decision making and, you know, why you chose to move from a research school to a teaching school and you know, kind of your experience with that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a big believer in authenticity. So I'm going to tell you the real story, which is that was not a deliberate choice to move from a research school to a teaching school. Uh, what it was, was a family situation where we wanted to be back in New York uh, for a number of personal reasons. My husband's from New York uh, and I was happy to relocate, but only if I could find a job that used my PhD, because there was no point in having done a PhD and working in academia for so long and starting to finally get some traction in my work if I couldn't use it. Um, so I applied for a number of universities in the New York area and ended up at the one that I found, which I would call a teaching school now. They would have called it a balanced school at the time. We still had to do research. It was just a very different kind of research. So it wasn't really like a deliberate, hey, I want to go be at a teaching school, but that's that's how it ended up working out. So, I mean, when you moved back to this to a, or moved to a teaching school from a research school, there are likely things that were very, very different. What do you think were some of the biggest surprises for you or obstacles you had to overcome moving from a research school to a teaching school? Yeah, so I'm going to answer that in two ways because I never answer questions straight. Uh, one of the things that I quote unquote got in trouble for at the research school I was at initially was I love teaching too much. Um, so I, I forced all my students to come meet me during office hours and people wondered why I had students in my office and what the problem was. There was no problem. I just wanted to meet with my students and get to know them. Uh, I was nominated for three teaching awards one year and literally told if I won the university wide one, I would never get tenure. So I would be labeled a teacher, not a researcher. So there were some challenges that also sort of prompted the push out of a research school as opposed to just the pull into the, the teaching school. One of the things that was most different for me was the embracing of teaching, right? So it was, you're here to teach. I taught three, three. So I taught six courses a year at Pace University. That was our standard load. Um, and that was a release from the rest of the university outside of the business school taught a four, four. So just think about what you may be teaching, Joshua, now in your faculty career nationally, what you'll be teaching at Auburn. I'm at Tennessee. I teach three a year, not three a semester. So completely different load. I had five preps one year, you know, just completely different world. So surprising was just uh, how much time and effort teaching can take when you do a very lot of it. Um, that was kind of a big adjustment. Um, but you could also pop into people's offices and say, hey, I'm struggling with teaching this topic. Do you have any suggestions or do you have any exercises you use or whatever? And so that was a, a really fun part of moving to a teaching school. I think the other biggest change was the research expectations, right? But a research one school you got to publish and you got to publish in A's. Um, at a teaching school, you got to publish, but you, the expectation at Pace University at that time, I don't know what it is now, but the expectation was you needed to publish in a peer-reviewed journal. Didn't matter acceptance rates or anything else. And we had, you know, the list of if you publish in these big ones, then that's great. You sort of counts for three, um, but if you, you just have to publish somewhere. So um, I was curious, do you think, you know, you're describing uh, your colleagues at the research school saying that you were, you were too good of a teacher, you know, and it sounds like you kind of face some backlash almost for being an accomplished teacher. Um, do you think that that, um, that st stigmatization, I guess, I got, what, what do you think of that? And do you think that that's an issue that a lot of students face or a lot of new faculty face? 
At the time, it was absolutely a stigma that you had to be either or you had to make a choice. I do not think that's true anymore, to be fair. Uh, so at Tennessee, we value both. And many schools now recognize teaching is important. That's where your students and your, it's not just the tuition money. It's really just student satisfaction is important. Student education is important. So I think now we recognize as a field that you can teach and do research and be good at both. Um, and in fact, it's sometimes easier to be good at both than one or the other, um, but that wasn't in place at the time. Uh, I think you have to understand the priority of the school where you're going to work uh, or you're considering working to know what their priorities are. It's kind of, are you a really good teacher and you happen to do research or are you a really good researcher and you also teach? Like It's, it's like your academic identity, right? You have to pick what's Who's the main character and who's the supporting character? So you said, you know, you have to kind of fit the institution that you're at. And I was curious, did you did you change your policy like moving forward, like calling students into office hours and stuff like that? Or did you continue doing what you did and to heck with everybody, uh, what they think? You know, it sounds easy to say it now, but I've always been a believer in being authentic to myself. So yes, you need to be political and you need to fit in. But if you're having to change yourself so much for the institution where you're working, then it's not a good fit which is also part of why I left my first institution. It was just clear it wasn't the best fit for me at that time of what was going on there and what was going on in my life. Um, I have to be authentic to myself. Um, so if you if you don't want to teach six courses a year, you have no business going to a teaching school because you will be miserable. You will hate your life. And as a result, you'll be terrible at it, right? So if you don't want to aim for the AMJ, AMR, ASQ, whatever's of the world, SMJs, then you don't belong at a research one school because you're going to be miserable with the set of expectations that gets put on you for that. Um, so I think you just have to know yourself and be true to yourself in choosing the career that you choose. And it may change over time. Like I said, when I started my PhD program, I didn't know research was a thing. I love research now. I also still love teaching. Um, so that's, you, you can do both, but you have to understand what you're portraying to the institutions where you're applying and what you're going to be expected to do once you start a job there. So, you know, when you're talking about being, um, at, you know, teaching a 3-3 load and that, you know, people need to be cognizant of that. So, you know, the question that I would have is, how were you able to balance your research productivity with a 3-3 load? I think balance is a myth. And I laugh because I really think balance is a myth. I think we set up these expectations that you can get everything done and you can't, you have to make choices and sacrifices. So it's funny because I thought you were going to ask me the superhero icebreaker from last season. So I was all ready with my answer to the superhero question, but I'm going to share it anyway. Um, I wish I was Hermione Granger, even though she's not a superhero, because I want a time turner. Because I want more time to follow up on research questions that are interesting, to engage with students at all levels, undergrad, master's, PhDs, and to still have time to do the fun things that I enjoy in my life. And that's that's not real. Um, you can't. So you have to make choices, right? My uh, oldest son was two months old when I started my PhD. I had a second child in the middle of my PhD program. So when I started my faculty job, similar to you, Joshua, I had a little one, but I had two little ones. They were two and five at the time. And so was I the best mom? Not necessarily, because I worked a lot. Was I the best wife? Not necessarily, because I worked a lot. Uh, my first job, my first semester teaching at Pace, I taught three nights a week. Okay, you move two kids to a new community and teach three nights a week. That's not an ideal situation. Like that's not balanced in any way, shape, or form of that of that work. So I think again, being real, there are trade-offs. I think there's balance over a year or over a couple of years of your life with spouses or partners or kids or whatever, but. I'll be the first one to say I work too much. 
sorry, I know this is supposed to be a rosy podcast, but the reality is important that if you want to be at a teaching school and you still want to do research, you have to bust your tail to get that done. Like it doesn't just happen. And yes, the expectation was I could publish anything in anywhere, but I wasn't willing to let that be my expectation for myself. I still wanted the ability to do interesting research that had impact on our field and the population of entrepreneurs and ultimately have the ability to go somewhere else if a teaching school didn't work out for me. Um, and that's the only reason I was able to move from a teaching school to a research school is because I had the publication record to do that. It's very hard to go from a teaching school to a research school. So Melissa, in all of your years of teaching, what do you think was the best and the most challenging experience you've had in the classroom? I've had a lot of best experiences in the classroom. I, I love to be in the classroom. I mean, I'm just point blank. I love to teach, always have. Uh, I love it when you see the light bulbs go on. And um, so I like teaching undergrads in some ways because all of a sudden they're like, oh, and you can just see them understand things. I love teaching master's students. Um, I teach a very practical um, strategic staffing course right now to master's students. So it's people working in HR that are trying to hire in this crazy world we currently live in on trying to hire people. I mean, the labor market's a mess right now in the US. And so that's really interesting right now. And I love teaching PhD students, again, to see their light bulbs go on and to have some that say, I am going to hate this class because I am not a micro person, end up doing a dissertation that's pretty darn micro. And I, I just love seeing them engage with the work too. Yes, I'm talking about you, Ashley. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, for me, the highlights in the classroom are too numerous to, to say. I think you also asked me about challenges, yes? What did you want to say part of that? Yeah, sorry. So I have to pause because I remember the question. Uh, the hardest person in the classroom. Uh, I am extremely introverted, believe it or not. And I struggle with the first day of the semester always. It doesn't matter what level. It doesn't matter if I already know the PhD students from being down the hallway from them. I really, really struggle. I'll even say the first couple of weeks of classes every semester. So the first time I taught at Tennessee, for example, I've been teaching the course, it was a basic intro to management course, for a really long time, but not with 75 kids in the room staring at me. At Pace, at a teaching school, usually your class sizes are smaller, right? So our classes were 35 to 45 students, not 75. And this class now at Tennessee is up to about 100 students in a room. Like to me, that was intimidating as heck. My solution is I walk around and I chat with the students before class because if I can develop these one-on-one -on -one relationships with them, I feel more comfortable. If I can learn all, learn all of their names, all of that, that's fantastic. I got feedback later from one class that semester that said um, I was scary. Because I walked around and I wouldn't let him just hide in the classroom. I was like, I'm scary. No, you scared me. Like, so it's just, it's that, that's my struggle is the first couple of weeks of the semester until I know their names. No, that's awesome. And uh, it's, it's also really nice to hear that you're, that you're uh, still nervous or you, you know, you still have those feelings, by the way, that's, um, and stepping into the classroom this semester, I wondered if that will ever go away because I feel the same way. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is um, that people should be thoughtful about selecting a school that they best fit with and, you know, just kind of being authentic, that they can feel comfortable being authentic in that environment. And so one of the things that I wanted to know is, you know, in terms of PhD students, what should they keep in mind when considering, you know, whether they should go to a teaching school or a research school or a balanced school? What should the, what advice would you give them? I think it's all about the kind of career you aspire to have. We tend to have this rhetoric that the research one schools are the ultimate goal for everybody. 
And I think that's a great goal for a lot of people, but, but it's not the ultimate goal for everybody. And so I think being real with yourself is important. Um, I think you should consider the trade-offs, right? So teaching three courses a year versus six is very different, but it also matters how many preps you would be doing. So teaching six courses a year, if that's two preps, is not nearly as bad as five preps, right? Five different classes or different levels, some undergrads, some masters, whatever. So I think you need to understand not just these kind of big buckets of teaching school, research school, balance school, but what does that really mean at that school? What are the expectations put on you from the classroom perspective? What are the expectations on the research perspective? And what are the expectations in the service perspective? Sometimes at a teaching school, you're expected to do a lot more uh, student advising. I had to learn our entire undergraduate curriculum at Pace so I could advise students regardless of major on what classes to take. That's fine. I don't mind doing that, but that's a whole lot of time and effort. And that changes a lot in a university, especially a small university, which is where I was. So that expectation was a huge chunk of time out of my week's days during class registration time. At Tennessee, we don't do that, right? There's a professional advisement staff that does all of that and faculty are not expected to do that. We do career advising, but we don't do course advising. And so I think understanding a lot of those things, I had no clue as a PhD student that faculty might get involved in advising students on which classes to take which semester and how to structure their academic programs and things. So just understanding what those expectations are is really important because ultimately it's about your time. So how much time will you spend in the classroom? How much time will you spend on preps, on grading? Do you have a teaching assistant or not? Is there a research assistant available to you or not to help you with some of the sort of more basic research things to free up your time to focus on the more complex research tasks? What are your service expectations in terms of committee assignments? But it's not just you're on one committee or two committees, but how often do they meet? What's the workload between meetings? Um, those things are things that creep up on you you don't really realize until you get to every Friday night and go, okay, now I can start the real work, which is the research, and you end up having to do that on the weekend. In terms of like developing as a teacher, one of the things that I would like is to be able to see other teachers teach or, you know, understand different methods and things like that kind of outside of a, you know, I know that we have these PDWs and things, but, you know, are there any resources that you've come across in your career that like would help people become more effective as an instructor? That's a great question. I think there's a lot of resources available now to help you become a better instructor. I think I mean, you can watch any number of YouTubes of, of online classes being taught, right, to see how people engage. But honestly, I think the best way to learn is to sit in classes at your own institution, because then you've got experience with your own sort of student population, whether that's your PhD institution or where you get your first faculty job, sit in on other people's classes and um, see what they're doing. At a teaching school, often part of the job talk is to do a demo class you have to teach as part of the job talk. And I used to love it when we had job candidates in because you get to watch them come teach a class and their guest lecture for the day. But still, you saw very different styles and different activities and exercises. And the more you can experience other people teaching, the more you can figure out tips and tricks that you like and things you might want to avoid in your own teaching. Um, that's a great way to develop. And most people, when you say, hey, can I sit down in your class, are more than happy to let you do that. What's been your favorite class to teach so far, like content wise? Yeah, that one's easy. Uh, so I teach, I don't teach it at Tennessee. I used to teach a negotiations course to undergraduate students. And it was my very favorite class to teach because it is a wild class because every class was three hours once a week. And every class was structured where we talk about the content of power and influence or whatever the topic of the day was. And then they would go negotiate a simulation. 
and they start out easy early in the semester, one-on-one. -on -one. By the end of the semester, the final exam, if you will, was an eight-party union management negotiation with eight different roles and eight different players. And I loved the class in general because you never knew what you were going to get. So once you've been teaching for years and years, it kind of gets stale if you don't up your game and refresh your material. It also gets stale from the student perspective because they want to see current stuff. But for me, this class was never the same class twice, even with the same content, because negotiation content doesn't change a lot. Uh, but the exercises would change or just the personalities of the students would change. So sometimes you get very docile students that don't want to really be combative. And sometimes you get absolute combative behavior in the classroom, which is fascinating. I finally had to stop my final exam exercise after security was called in my room twice for behavior involving uh, significant uh, aggression. I'll just call it the, the final exam structure experience structure was all eight parties had to sign the agreement or it was a zero for everybody. And some of them deliberately used that power play very effectively and others were pissed. And I was like, hey, you should have learned about power and influence and how they could do this. And we talked about how you head off negative behavior and how you should address this early in the three hour negotiation and you didn't do it. So um, so I was on a first name basis with our security staff and it's wild because you walk around the room with different pairs of twos or threes or whatever and the conversation in one part of the room is completely different than the conversation in the other part of the room. Some people are lying and some people aren't and and then the debrief is always fun because I would walk around and write down everything, not everything, but things certain people were saying and so I would say so again I learned their names. So Sean when you said this, but the role actually says this, why are you lying? And they're all like, <gasps> And it, but they knew I was going to do it. It was fair game. It was in the syllabus. This is the deal. And it's a learning laboratory. We're all going to make mistakes. and I'm going to call you out. I mean, it wasn't just mistakes. It was just different motivations and styles of negotiating. But the people that would never think to lie or cheat or whatever, hearing that the person they were talking to was lying to them is just really eye-opening for them. And you could also see their behavior change over the course of a semester once you're sort of doing that debrief and talking about what strategies other people are using. That's such a good story. That's amazing. Looking back on your career so far, if you could have given yourself one single piece of advice for when you had first started your PhD, what would that advice have been? Don't give up. And I say that because the first year of a PhD program is really hard. This career is really hard. We get rejection all the time. And you just never know whether it's worth it or not. And I've had people recently say to me, wow, your life is so cool. You get to travel a lot, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it is. I'm grateful for that. But it took 20 plus years of really hard work and not giving up to get here. So uh, know that the hard work will pay off. That doesn't mean, you know, drive every project into the ground if it's clear it's not going anywhere, but it means that um, keep going, don't give up. Never quit on a bad day is the advice we give in hiking. Um, if you're having a bad day, you're getting some bad feedback, hang in there, sleep on it, rest a little bit, and then come back at it the next day and don't give up. Um, and that's, you know, I study resilience and persistence, but it's true in a PhD program. It's true as a faculty member. It's true in every part of our career. Just keep working hard and eventually it'll pay off. I'll throw this in. Do you know what the only difference is between a white belt and a black belt in karate? Black belt didn't give up. It's just a white belt that got dirty over time. That's all it is. Literally, that's what the eighth degree black belt in my dojo used to tell us. Um, it's just that's the difference. You didn't give up. You didn't quit in the middle. You just kept, kept working. And it got dirtier and dirtier with all the hard blood, sweat, tears, all hard work you put into it. That's the difference. That's amazing. No, that's great advice. And um, I feel like 
you were the perfect guest for this podcast. And I'm really grateful that Ashley brought you on to this, this season because there's so much wisdom in, in what you're sharing. And um, it's all very relatable. And I, and I really appreciate that. Um, authentic and relatable and useful. And um, I think everybody's going to really enjoy listening to it. Well, thank you guys. So we want to say a big thank you to Melissa for being our guest on this episode. We also want to thank all of you for listening and for hanging out with us while we had our brief hiatus. We're excited to be back and doing these episodes and offering this podcast for all of you. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, please feel free to reach out to our email address, tmientpod at gmail.com. And Andrew, Josh, and I look forward to reading your suggestions and hearing from you. And until next time.